Nurks of the Hub, your fan cast, brought to you by TV Series Hub. Hey Nurks, welcome back. I'm Kelsey. And I'm Deb. And we are so excited to bring you our guest today. If you guys are like us, fans of Strike Back, you will have seen his name popping up as the military advisor for the last for last season and this coming up season of Strike Back. But we are here today to talk to Paul Bittis about the amazing, incredible film, 1917, on which he was the military advisor. Paul, thank you so much for coming on. Uh, anyway. So tell us first, if you can explain to everybody a little bit about your background. We know you won't tell us much, but a little bit. And then how you kind of became a military advisor. Um, well, I was in the British Army for 24 years as an air sky god, paratrooper. <laughs> Clout. 12 for the 12 of the 12 and then i went into the security industry as a private investigator and a close protection operator and during a, a lean period where i'm trying to find my feet i was asked to go on a film or if i'd like to go and film as an extra um a george clooney film called monuments men and i just happened to be in the right place the right time offered a bit of advice and then got the bug for the film industry. And it just panned out from there, really. Well, I loved Monuments Men, by the way. Great film. Um, so we, we know what you do on Strike Back, where you have, uh, you know, a much smaller cast and then um, a crew of baddies coming through every couple of episodes. But I can't imagine how much more enormous being an advisor on a film like 1917 was. Can you give us an idea of... What all was entailed? What actually you had to do for that? I mean, I'm like overblown just thinking about all the details that you had to work with. How long did you work on the film? And tell us more about actually what you did on a day-to-day -day basis. Um, well, I started work on around that first week of January last year. And that started with, um, I got a script and I broke that down for, um, you know, to give the military perspective some things, which, I, which I'd, um, similar to what I do on Strike Back with Jack, which is basically, uh, he'll send me a script and then I'll send him some notes and say, well, if you did it like this, it will look more realistic. Or if you, um, you know, don't get him shot that way, get him shot this way, because he can continue doing his task. So that's the first part. And then I, I have to look about, look about, you know, look at the actors and um, the cast members and their characters and, and gear the training to the type of experience they have. Now, uh, George's character, Lance Corporal Schofield, was at the Battle of the Somme uh, a year previous. So he had prior experience of combat where um, the other guy, which is uh, Dean, Dean's character, he's, he's quite green. He's never been in combat before. So I... I altered their training so one was more experienced and one showed some traits or experience traits. Um, and how I did that is, for example, in the Somme, the pouches of their webbing, similar to you know, like the, the, the body you see on back, but the, mm -hmm. there were pouches. And, and they used to come undone because they wasn't very well designed. And they, they found out to their cost at the Somme where they, when the soldiers were lying up against the trenches, the pouches were coming undone and their rounds were falling out. And it wasn't until they were halfway across no man's land that they realised the, 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 the bullets had fallen out. Wow. Um, so obviously that fault in the wedding went back to you know, the, 
makers and then they started putting in bits and pieces to stop it from happening but drilled into the soldiers to check their packages before they actually start moving off mm. and that drill was still carried on today in the british army and in the u.s army and the canadian army and, you know it's check your pouches before you go to mm. make sure they're not undone so i made sure that that was something that i drilled into george Mackay, his character i want you to keep on checking your pouches when you move and with dean i didn't want him to do it as much but i wanted him to fiddle with his you know bits pieces were to show his nervousness right. i wanted to, when he fixed his bayonet he'd keep on checking his bayonet but the training started off with weapons training and i would punish them if they if they <laughs> made any mistakes i'd punish them if they had any rounds left in their webbing after firing and um they soon learn after a week of punishments <laughs> not to do not to make those mistakes again <laughs> Um, and then it just it just carried on. It was just training and training and training, and obviously rehearsals as well. So we were constantly out rehearsing. I would be there with uh, Sam, Sam Mendes, and the rest of the crew, and we'd be walking around and timing the uh, the sections of the script and staking out um, where certain things, certain actions would happen. And this is before the trenches are even dug. Hmm. So I was I was doing that right the way from January until we started filming uh, in April. So it would start off with, um, first of all, I'd have to make the plan around the script, depending on what was required. Um, and I used a lot of manuals from the period that we used actually to train the British soldiers at that time. And then I would take what was important out of that manual that was relevant to the script and to the action that you would be seeing. And then I'd, uh, what I'd do, first of all, is we had video interviews. So we held a, um, a sort of in, uh, a crowd audition in Salisbury. And I think we had about two, about 3,000 people turning up. Oh. And there was auditions for each guy, a video audition. And that was to see what type of people they were. You know, you know you, you're going to see them maybe for a very split second, but we wanted to see every guy. And Sam, Sam Mendes would look at every audition and he would pick the guys, the faces he liked. And then there was guys that were going to go to, there was 300 that would go to Bobbingdon and there would be 500 that would be going to Salisbury. But we obviously had more guys that would go to the, what, what we call a selection process. I had a selection process first. So we, I think I had about 700 that went through the selection and I needed to pick the best 500 out of that seven mm. to make sure that they were physically and mentally robust for the Salisbury, play, the Salisbury playing phase. For the Bovingdon phase, they didn't have to be as physically fit, but they all need to be mentally robust because they needed to be able to take orders. And I needed to make sure that the guys I picked only needed to be told once or twice. If you needed to be told three times, then you're no good for that show because it's a one take. You've got 800 metres of trench and there's no one hide. There's no uh, assistant directors that can hide in the cracks to uh, say, right, do your job now. Do what you've been tasked now. And all those guys in the Bovingham phase, I gave them tasks, things to do, things that would happen in the trench. Um, daily tasks that soldiers were required to do, uh, uh, you know, in the, the, the second and the frontline trenches. For the Salisbury phase, um, that was different. That was more with tactics. That was more how they moved into their trenches, how they moved into their their um, 
their formations. They also needed to pick sergeants, corporals, um, lance corporals, because I, I made sure that when you see them guys in the trench, when they're getting ready to assault, they're all in the actual historically correct lines of formations in their sections with their section commanders and their section two ICs, their corporals and lance corporals in the right place. The sergeants are in the right place between the uh, platoons, platoon sergeants, the lieutenants, you know, the captains were all in their right place historically. The, the lines of formations, we had the right infantrymen, we had the, uh, the grenadiers, I had the Lewis gun teams, I, I had five-man Lewis gun teams, and they were all trained as Lewis gun t uh, guys were, were trained back then. So everything we got was historically correct as, as we could, and I, I needed to make sure all the guys were in the right, right order and the right age for their ranks and everything else. And we, I taught them you know, also everything from weapon handling... Uh, to bayonet drill, very important, the bayonet drills. Uh, also, very important, um, a very important thing was how the guys moved out of the trench because they've got a bayonet on the end of their rifle and we've got our main actor running right the way mm. along that. Oh, my uh, gosh, yeah. Wow. That, was that shot was incredible. And uh, <laughs> one aspect as well that I, um, I always point out is the with the two actors, the two main casts, one of the first lessons I taught them was how to look after their feet. Mm -hmm. um, because they're wearing hobnail boots, the actual hobnail boots that they were wearing back then. You can imagine that they're going to be running around 12 hours a day in those boots, getting wet. Now, one of the main non-combat injuries in World War One was trench foot. Right. And soldiers were taught to look after their feet, but guys, you know, you just, sometimes they didn't get a chance to do that that much or they just wasn't educated as well. And then they, they got trench foot. They got blisters. The blisters became infected. Um, you know, and it's and then they, obviously it led on to other things. But it was equally important for the two actors because if they didn't look after their feet and if they wasn't able to identify hotspots, they would get blisters, they would get infected, and then they wouldn't be out of film. Right. And you can imagine how much money that would have been lost on filming days if they were unable to do that. So it was quite an important lesson that I taught them. I'm just sitting here... I, I, when I was in the movie, I was overwhelmed with the amount of detail and the thought of how much work went into it. And now I'm like just stupefied. <laughs> <laughs> what an enormous job you had. I can't, I don't even, I can't even comprehend how much training had to go into each individual shot. And, you know, how much time did you have to set up all of that choreography and, and to work with all of those individual actors. I, one of the things that really struck me about this film was that you have this enormous setting with so many soldiers and so much going on, and yet every face they passed, you, you had a connection with. You, you learned something about every face that they passed as you were going through the trenches, that yeah. there was enough of a connection there. So there was enough individuality in all of those 500 extras. How did you work with these guys to achieve something like that on such a grand scale? Um, I mean, it's, when you, when you start trying, I, I was training them all in sections and I was, I'd be telling, you know, so, I mean, I was running up and down that trench constantly. I'd be getting some guy and I'd say, right, I want you to start reading your Bible. You know, when they're waiting at that trench, and I want you to read a letter, and I want you to just 
roll this letter up and plug it into the into the into the ground so maybe it might get found mm-hmm. if you if you don't survive and mm-hmm. i want you crapping yourself i want you look completely shitting yourself and, I, and this sergeant i want you gripping him and telling him to get a grip of himself and so i was, I, I was running around all these individual guys you know when some when the when the, the blast starts getting off i told another guy I said, right i want you grab him take him to the side of the wall and then you're gonna scramble up but um collectively they had these microphones going right the way along. And mm-hmm. the AD, the first AD, Michael Lerman, he had uh, like the voice of God, we called it. <laughs> Imagine 800 metres of trench, 500 guys spread amongst it. You know, you're going to have to have a pretty loud voice. So I got the I, – before we did the scene, um, I got the um, the microphone and then I, I gave them a pet talk about – how they're going to be feeling just before they're going over that trench and i oh. i said you know i was like guys anger and fear okay you are scared shitless because you're now about to go over the top and you may be your last this may be your last moments um and everything your your senses are going to be heightened you know just the, just the simple thing of breathing is going to be you know amplified sounds are going to be amplified you're going to be looking at some of your friends and you know, and there's, there's going to be that silence as well. There's not going to be all this, like, because that's not what happened. You know, you read right. the battlefield accounts, it's complete silence. They were just waiting for that, 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 you know, that whistle blast. Mm-hmm. Um, but I also said anger as well. You're, you're, you're angry because you're here because not particularly because of the enemy, could be because of politicians. It could be, you know, you're angry and you know that there is only one way you're getting out of this. And that's by closing in and killing the enemy, killing those guys on the other side, because you're not getting out of it any other way. There is another way of getting out of it, but you're probably going to get shot later on for it. So they are in a situation that when they went there, they thought, oh, this is great. You know, they looked at the posters and they, they believed all the all the all the um, all the propaganda that was being fed. Uh, and then all of a sudden they're there uh, and it's not everything it was painted to be and it's uh but they know that they've there's only one way of getting out of it and that's go by going forward so i gave them that talk and i said i want you to feel that i don't want you to just sit there with a face on and just go oh yeah i really want you to think about it yeah and i mean one of the things i did on, on another movie but it's slightly different as i got you know it's called Tolkien, mm-hmm. um where i got all the soldiers to actually write letters as if they were writing their final letter Wow. Um, I couldn't do it there because there was far too many blokes. I only had about 200 blokes on Tolkien. There was far oh. too many blokes you know, to put letters in there. But I said, write letters as if you were writing your final letter home and put your thoughts and feelings in there. So, But for this one, I had to do it as a big collective. This right. is what you're feeling. And I want you to actually put that out. So when you see them going over the top, they're showing that anger. You, know, you see them with the fear as if before mm-hmm. they go over. And then the anger, just as they go over that lip. And uh, again, I, I, I talked about parachuting. I mean, before you jump, before you do a, a night descent or any descent, you've got that fear and you've got that anxiety when you're inside the aircraft. And as you move towards the lip of the door, the fear stops just as you go over that lip and hit the slipstream and then the training kicks in. And the aggression then has to then kick in to be able to carry out that parachute descent safely and, and sort all yourself out and drop your kit. That's the same as going into battle. Just as you go over that start line, training kicks in and then the aggression has to start and then the fear's gone. So that's how I explain it. 
This podcast is brought to you by tvserieshub.tv, your site for entertainment news, reviews, and interviews. Now back to the show. It's incredible the scope of this. I think <laughs> I think I honestly had a different idea, even knowing how much you did with Strike Back, I just had a different idea of when you were explaining what you did on this, it was going to be more like checking the uniform and checking the guns and are they holding it right and all these things. And this is like such a huge scope. And I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about how you prepared for this and and how like what you think from your like past experience prepared you to take on the scope of not only making sure that all the equipment and the way things are done but even like the feelings and and we have like a really significant role in this film (laughs) that I don't think even us knowing you understood like how significant it was and so I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about how you prepared for that and what from your military experience helped you with that side of things beyond just like, because obviously you're in a modern day military, you're not, it's not the same, you know, equipment, the same way things are fought. So, yeah. Well, I suppose (laughs) um, if we go back a bit further, like, I mean, when we finished strike back, um, I got back from Malaysia and I had six days and then I was off to Lithuania to do Catherine the Great. Right. Which mm-hmm. Helen Mirren. Yeah. Um, yep. So I'm going from modern day special forces to sort of, you know, Catherine the Great, sort of Napoleonic stroke, stroke sort of, you know, Russian Russian army. And it was literally, I got back there and, I'm, and then I'd just been handling M4s and doing the stuff I love. <laughs> then I was in a, a cold, cold hangar with 200 Lithuanian extras holding a musket. And I'm like, oh. you know, and then I'm going into Napoleonic drill, which I've done obviously previous on War and Peace. So, I mean, I've got retained that information. Got back from Lithuania around about um, I think six of December, and then I was asked to go to um, the studios to meet Sam Mendes about two days later, and then <laughs> he just basically said, "Oh yes, I've seen your, I like your stuff." Yeah, he saw War and Peace, he loved it, and uh, he, so he knows I've done big big crowd battles before and uh, he said yeah blah 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 and it's you know it's a one shot by the way so uh no pressure <laughs> right <laughs> right don't worry you've done that before <laughs> yeah and then so the research i've always i've said like you know military advising is 60 percent research and then 40 percent your experiences that you put into that and you know tactics weapons they all change, but you know the the sense of a soldier. You know that the, the the ideals of a soldier and the way a soldier thinks don't change. The warrior doesn't change, but the, the weapons do. But it's also, I mean, I got battlefield manuals from that time. Um, I also read a lot of diaries from soldiers mm-hmm. at the time. One of them being the last Tommy, which is about a guy. He was uh, sort of last. World uh, soldier from World War One. Um, he died about three years ago, I think. And um, I just read his experiences, and that opened my eyes a lot, you know, to a lot of stuff. Um, in fact, it's quite it's quite interesting. I had this conversation with this historical nerd who was like, <laughs> "Oh, I couldn't help it. What what diary did you use?" 
It was all like that. He goes, I want Banyol. He was like, he was going like, I was like, oh, come on, mate. And he's like, uh, well, you know, if it was um, if it was February 14th, it might not have come from in time. It was all like that. Yeah, and I said, Banyols are a guideline. Yeah. But in the field, at section, company, and, you know, you know platoon level, platoon company level, sorry, sometimes the commanders will make their own their own tactics to fit what their experience are. So they will learn from their own experiences and they'll fit their tactics. And I, I gave an example. I said, did you know that there was a company commander that came out of an idea that each section would have a football? And then when they was to get the whistle to go over the top, they were told that they would kick that ball a couple of metres forward. They weren't to run after it, but they were to just move towards the ball. And then when they got to it, they would kick it a couple of metres again at each mm. section. And it was a way of controlling the sections, but it was also a way of taking the men's minds of what was going to happen. And they were, they were told, basically, just keep on kicking that ball, keeping your sections. And then once, obviously, the enemy start firing, that's when you can then start going like a lunatic to try and get towards the enemy. And he's like, oh, yes, I've read that. And I went, yeah, you read that in an in account, a battlefield account by a soldier. He goes, yeah, yeah, yeah. I said, but did you see that in the manual? And mm. that's when he went, oh, no, OK, I see your point. And, you know, so sometimes you know, we improvise. You know, we, uh, you have to improvise as a soldier. And sometimes I'd input that. So when I was reading these manuals and when I was reading the battlefield accounts, I then start having my own picture of the relationship between the officers and the men. And obviously the way they were trained. And so then what I would do is then take those bits that were required. I'd read the script. Right, OK, we need that bit of training and I need that bit of training. And then I'd put that into a, a training format on how we should be training these soldiers. And given the, the numbers, for example, Salisbury, I need to take 50 men. And then I'd have 50 men doing a historical stand. So they understood how the equipment was fitted, what went into the equipment, because I wanted them to know where the bullets went, and I wanted them to know where the water bottle was. I wanted them to know the right way you put a bayonet mm -hmm. um, in your bayonet frog, because there's nothing worse than you know the bayonets going in with the, the ring to the, to the front because that stands out straight away. I wanted to make sure they always done their pouches up so there was no pouches flapping around because that's a bad look for films. You see it a lot. You know people don't bother doing it. Mm -hmm. um, so I wanted them to understand that, and then we'd have a weapon training stand. So I'd have fifty there. Another 50 on another stand, another 50 on another stand, another 50 on another stand, and they'd be doing this round robin. And I'd do that for the first morning. Then I'd get another lot in. And I, it was literally just churning them out. And then once we got the first um, 200, sorry, once we got the first 150, they would go off to the trenches and they'd start doing rehearsing. And then we'd get the other 150 and, and so on and so on until we got everyone through. And that's how basically we was working it. Wow. Yes. I had a historical advisor with me as well, a guy called Andy Robert Shaw, who was a very nice guy. Um, but sometimes I needed to comfort him because <laughs> it was like, um, oh, they wouldn't do it like this. And I'm like, Andy, come with me. Come here. And I put my arm around him like, and say, look, mate, you know, it's a film, not a documentary, okay? <laughs> <laughs> We've got the camera's got to be out to see this bit. If they don't see it, and then you go, oh, well, yeah, yeah, I understand. But he's a real, you know, he, he's a good guy, and he's got a brain like a planet. You know what I mean? He can tell you so much stuff. So, I mean, I learned a lot from him, um, but he also learned a lot from me about, you know, sometimes you've got to give to make the film, to make, you know, make the drama. 
sometimes reality impacts it. <laughs> um, you brought up the weapons, obviously a huge amount of prop weapons and, you know, costumes and um, all of that went into this film. How, where did all those, I'm watching this and thinking, where do they get all these appropriate weapons for a film like this? Did you, can you explain what, what went into acquiring all of that detail? Well, the armor, you've got the armors um, and they, they get so many live weapons, mm -hmm. but then obviously they get, they have to get loads of prop weapons made. Um, yeah. And if you see the bits, if you, if you ever get to chart, if you get, if, you know, if you watch the film again, there's a little trick, for example, uh, because some of these prop weapons, they had little bolts to keep them together, <laughs> little nut, which really be there. Now, when Schofield walks up towards the guys, the, the guy that's singing, right? Mm -hmm. the camera goes around, those soldiers are all watching him sing. If you look at their hands, I, I made sure I positioned their hands over where there was a, a bolt mm -hmm. that wouldn't have been mm -hmm. there on a, on a real rifle. So you can see him with their hands just covering it. So I was doing even things like that where I was running around to make sure that those little things could be covered up so the camera doesn't see it as yeah. it's going around. Mm -hmm. I, I needed to know the path of the camera, who would be in shot, so then we could hide those little things that, you know, some weirdo would pull up and go, oh, that's not right. <laughs> <laughs> We're laughing because I would be that weirdo. Yeah, I was going to say, Deb's totally that weirdo. <laughs> Uh, it's funny because you you mentioned like the the packs and people noticing that the packs are coming off and i'm that's one of those things that i always notice is when they people don't have their molly strips done right and the their yeah. their packs are you know bouncing off their their vests and stuff i'm like oh come on something so simple just get your molly straps right <laughs> yeah i mean there's there's you got the you got the two main characters they had to have their respirator their gas mask pouch on the back mm -hmm. Um, and that's so solely for a technical reason, um, because of the, the microphone, it, it had to be so, it was so sensitive right. because you had, for example, 800 meters of trench and all the transmitters had to be out the way. Right. You know, there's very little CGI on this. There's very little painting out. So those transmitters had to be out the way, um, and they needed to be out of receive. So they, they made that decision, right? Well, if we have that, that gas mask on the front as it should be, you're just not going to get the sound. Right. Uh, and then that's going to cause problems because they, they every every second of that trench, the dialogue had to be spot on, on mm -hmm. the set. Every, you know, so it, it was very important. So they, they made that technical decision. But, yeah, I mean, that's the thing. You, you try and get things as, as close to reality as you can. Um, and, I, yeah, I mean, I think this film's done quite well at that, yeah. Oh, amazing, Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it was beautiful. So I'm curious about, because it's shot to appear as though it's one continuous shot, I mean, and, and there's, you know, breaks and stuff like that, but, I mean, it overall looks like a one shot. And we know how difficult that was with just the, like, four-minute strike back one shot and, and having, you know, time restrictions and money restrictions and stuff. And so I'm curious about your work on that and then going into this and how it was shot 
um, how one how it varied and two how much time you had for each of those sort of segments how many times are they able to actually reshoot him I mean that when he's running down the trenches you know as you're talking about like 800 feet of trenches I mean that's a ton of CGI and time and everything not CGI a ton of uh, explosives and everything happening yeah. how many times were they able to to redo that I guess did that four times I'm shocked it's only four times yeah uh, but yeah. Four times. The first time, it's you had two guys smack into George, and when it happened, it, I mean, I, I came up to the box. I went, I went up to the box where where Sam was. He came out and he was beaming. He was like, "Oh yeah," and I said, and I came out and went, "Yeah, it's fucking mega." And he goes, "Oh yeah," but he bumped into him, and I went, "Yeah, but that's even better." Right. I said, "You've got some lunatic giving it zigzags down the road, and like you're bound to smack. Someone's bound to smack into it." Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, no, but, but I'm not sure we can use it. Anyway, they did it three more times, and I think it was on the third time someone bumped into him again. Um, they did loads of rehearsals of it. Uh -huh. There was loads of rehearsals without the explosions, but it was done four times with the explosions, um, and twice. No one touched him at all, and twice, one well, once one guy hit him, and the first time, two guys, which is the one they used in the end, which I was right. so glad they did because it was more realistic. I said, you know, right. for no one to have touched him, no one to have hit him, it wouldn't have been – people would have gone, oh, here comes no one hit him. Um, so it, it was perfect. But that – I mean, that shot alone, the, the way it was done, they, I mean, they had one extended crane that came up, then you got two guys that had to hook that off, follow George as he comes up the trench, then hook it onto another crane that was on a car, and then you know he, he goes off. And the timing, you had to make sure that all the extras, their timing was spot on, that as soon as you see the arm of that crane, then you go um, to most of them. But there would be some would say, just before George gets to you, you go. So then there was guys running in front of him and guys running on the side of him and the timing had to be perfect. So, I mean, it, two guys bumping into him out of 500 ain't bad. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but it's good at the same time, you know, if that makes sense. Yeah, well, it was, I'm still, like, the. I think, although as beautiful as that shot was, running through that little town in the dark with all the bright explosions, oh, could, yeah. oh my God, uh -huh. that, that scene will, like, live with me forever just because of the sheer terror and exactly. like beauty of it. I mean, it was just beautifully done. So can you talk yeah. a little bit about how that one was set up? Cause we've seen a lot on, you know, they've, we've seen sort of behind the scenes stuff of, of him trying to cross the canal and then him, and then that one long trench shot. But I haven't seen a lot of people talking about, yeah, inner coots where it was just, that was one of my favorite scenes. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 I mean, it is, that is, that is good, yeah, especially the way, you know, I mean, the crosses go, you know, the shadow of the crosses. But yeah. that started off in, in – because um, they did that in Shepparton. Um, and they built this whole – in the back lot of Shepparton Studios, and they built the whole town or this whole, you know, sort of destroyed village. Um, and, again, it started off with just flags. Um, it was just you – know, and I was actually – that was the area that I was training the two cast over before it got all dug up and built up. So it started off with flags, and then we just walked the course, and George was, like, running along. And then I would suggest, look, you know, when a flare goes up, you hit the dirt. And, you know, it would it, – and it, it suited 
Joel, uh, Sam as well. And he said, no, that, that'd be good because we can have it where he hits the dirt just as that big flare goes up. And then as soon as it starts settling, he gets up and he starts running again. Um, but then they had these models built in the studio as well. And they had these wires that went around and they had lights and they would just move these lights along to work out where the shadows would fall. As oh, wow. um, So it went to that much detail. And then there was these four massive cranes and they, they surrounded the area and they would have flares attached and they had the timing. So the flare would go up on these, these cranes and they would, the, the flare would always travel the same path. So it, the shadow never changed. And there's a cut where George walks into a little shop, a, a, a bombed out shop. So he goes against, gets against the wall. You see the shadows go up and then he moves through this bombed up, bombed out shop. And he just goes through like a doorway. Mm-hmm. That's a cut. But the yeah. shadow was exactly the same as, as he moves through and then moves out. And the shadow was exactly the same. And I, I actually watched them stitch it together right wow. there while it was filming. And it just was seamless. You just looked and thought, can't tell. The shadow falls the same way as he's moving out. That's so it was cool. just things like that, you know. It was, you know, really, and it's quite, it was quite spooky as well, especially when you see the German soldier coming out and it looks like a ghost. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Sure, yeah, all he sees is that silhouette. And even from where I was, and I, I knew it did look scary. You know, it looked quite spooky, like, you know. But it was, you know, that was two weeks of night shoots. Because I came back from training the cast, went straight back straight back to the UK. I had one of my guys, an assistant, just look after things for those two weeks out in Croatia while I finished that bit off. And then as soon as I finished that, I um, went to the rap party and then I was straight out on the plane back out to Croatia. You're a busy man. <laughs> I, I left battlefields. Once we finished the battles... I had one of my assistants go to Scotland because it was not as much military stuff. I literally left the battles at Salisbury Plains, got up, uh, drove home, had enough time for a shower, and then a, a car was there to pick me up, to take me to the airport, to take me to Croatia, train the cast, train the cast, did some stuff, did a load <laughs> of battles and everything, and then I had to go back, do that, and then back for good for creation so i'd be i was being backwards and forwards wow so for you nurks who are not familiar when he's talking about croatia and training the cast he's talking about strike back deb and i's favorite 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 show who mm-hmm. paul we've talked to paul and you guys um have probably seen us tweeting about the the strike back crib sit rep podcast who paul has been on before and will be on again to talk about the stuff that he did uh <laughs> for that but just so everybody knows that's what he's referring to and I'm glad that you talked about how, you know, packed and intense your schedule was, because I know just watching this film, how emotional it was and how difficult, because you connected so much with the characters, how difficult it was to watch. So I'm wondering, as you, yeah, this is a job and yeah, you're training all these people, but you also have this enormously stressful schedule. What does it take to just emotionally get through that kind of work i mean this isn't you're not just sitting on the sidelines on this you've lived this so what is it like to have to constantly have that emotional pull back to what reality was let's go to the gym (laughs) that's 
my, my usually my answer too. <laughs> Just go to the gym and, and then have a have a pint later on or something like that. Um, well, I, I mean, yeah, it's, it was stre- it, it a bit stressful sometimes because I had I was doing stuff I was doing stuff for Jack, uh-huh. and I was doing that as well. So I'd be finishing the day's filming, and then I'd be coming back, and then I'd have a, a script to look through and break break the notes down for for you know for strike back and and then a training program putting together so as soon as i flew out i could put the training back you know and i lit, i didn't have much time to myself um and it was only after after i finished in croatia and i got back home and i was just sort of like i was exhausted i was um i i mean i literally got back and then i had two days and then i was off to a rehearsal for guy ritchie film um and I, you know, I was, I was, I was talking to uh, Scott Eastwood, right? Who I, mm-hmm. I get on quite well with. Um, who I was on Fury with, and he remembered me from from there. Like, and we was chatting, and you know, even he was saying, "You look so burnt out." And I'm mm-hmm. like, I, I do, I feel it. I'm starting to feel it now, because I was constantly non-stop. You know, it was constant. You know, plus, plus, it was my birthday on the on the the last day of strike back as well my my Aww. 51st so we had a nice wow <laughs> during the, the south african and england rugby game which was quite oh good. my goodness <laughs> best damn cast party ever <laughs> well we thank you so much for spending so much time the film is amazing your work was phenomenal so on nerks we always end with a final question and that is your favorite fan experience and this can be a fan is something you're something you have met someone that you're a fan of or fans meeting you funny or touching we've had everything from oh my god someone told me i helped them through their cancer treatment to a fan sent me a picture of their feet and asked for me to send them back so <laughs> we're always curious uh, your favorite fan story fan story um Andy hopkins i was on transformers transformers 5 and um Andy hopkins obviously was in it and i was i was doing bits and pieces on there and it was during the celebration of um, the anniversary of Arnhem, which is a big, um, big, big thing where loads of paratroopers go to the Battle of Arnhem. And I missed it again. All my mates were out taking the mickey, laughing and going, ah, you, you, you know, you should be with us. You know, everyone's getting drunk, obviously. And um, I, I went up to Anthony Hopkins, who actually played um, one of the major characters in the film A Bridge Too Far. Mm-hmm. He played um, a, a major in that, and uh, Major John Frost. And I just went up to him, I had my Parage top on, and I said, ah, uh, oh, I'm missing Arnhem because of you. That's funny, because you was in the Battle Bridge too far, wasn't you? And he laughed, he goes, oh, all right, yeah, yeah, yeah. And we were chatting away, and I said, well, my mates are taking the piss at me at the moment, because I'm, I'm, uh, I'm missing it. And he goes, well, let's give them something to laugh at. And then we got the camera and we both saluted to him, but I gave him a salute, wrong hand there, gave him a salute. Um, and I sent it off to my mates. I went, here's me with John Frost. Uh, <laughs> that's awesome. I love that. Yeah, no, that's a pretty good, that's a pretty good fan story, Paul. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks for listening to another Nurks podcast. Rate us, leave us a review on iTunes, and follow us on Twitter at Nurks of the Hub. And let us know what you think. 